Hello and welcome to the Disrupting Balance podcast with Hanifa Barnes. It's me, I'm your host, a multicultural mama, wife, and leader. And here is where we amplify the stories of multicultural women who are unraveling from tradition to make the switch in work, well-being, and winning. I made the switch. Former professional actor turned lawyer turned education executive, and I'm not done yet. Join in on the conversation and learn how you can unravel from your stuff to make the switch, disrupt balance, and win. Samantha Bobola admits to standing in her identity as a woman of color a little later in her life. The Filipino-American and philanthropy executive not only tussled with her cultural identity, but also her professional identity, which took some adjusting to within her immediate community. But now she has taken off and recognizes each day that in her professional role, which sits at the nexus of power, privilege, and wealth, Samantha is uniquely situated to create the change that can impact the philanthropic space and create an opening for other women of color. So hello, everybody, and welcome to the Disrupting Balance podcast. So excited for our guest today. So excited for this new episode, new season, and new year. We have none other than Samantha Bobola in the guest chair. Hello, Samantha. How are you? Hi. Happy New Year. I'm doing yes, well. Happy New Year. I am so glad you're here and you agreed to share in your experiences and all that you have going on. So we're going to jump right in and start with the first question. And that is, what is your story? What is my story? I always lead with um, who I am. And that's proudly being woman of color and daughter of immigrants. And I want people to know that's my story because it was a huge part of my identity that I really didn't appreciate or even recognize and even celebrate until I would say the past seven, eight years. Um, And I'm in my mid thirties now. Um, And so it's been a pretty long journey to get to where I am today. So I always lead with that. Um, so my parents are Filipino immigrants. They came in the early eighties and they settled in New Jersey and they had three of us. I'm the middle child, which probably if people who know me (laughs) understand, (laughs) they're like, Oh yeah, that makes sense. You're the, you have, you have middle child syndrome, but, um, it was a really interesting time growing up as, um, the daughter of immigrants. Um, there weren't a lot of Filipinos, Filipino Americans growing up, it was a very, um, I had a very, I would describe it as isolated upbringing because, um, we were usually around other family members, um, because there just weren't, you know, it was the eighties. There weren't a lot of Filipinos in New Jersey compared to today. And I I think, uh, Filipinos in New Jersey make up a large percentage of the population, which is super exciting. But back when I was a little girl, girl growing up, it just wasn't like that. And so, it was a really interesting thing to try to navigate uh, that identity um, and also being an immigrant, which is like, you know, your parents come from a different country 
and they're trying to assimilate because that was very much um, when you're an immigrant coming to the Americas in the 80s, like that's what you did. You assimilated, right? There, there really was no other way um, to make a living for yourself, but to try to um, incorporate yourself into the dominant society. So that's what my parents did. And it was always really interesting. There were different highs and lows of my childhood, but that part of my identity, I really kind of shied away from because I just wanted to be like all the other kids. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be like everybody around me. I just wanted to fit in. And I'm not going to say I was an outcast growing up because I think in some ways, everyone is a bit of an outcast growing up, but being an immigrant and uh, um, a person of color growing up, you have different experiences than say your white or your black friends do. And there's a lot mm-hmm. of things about Filipino culture that my friends didn't understand. Um, and I was teased growing up and it was just, you know, it, it, it was very formative, I think for me. And so a large part of my life, I really felt just kind to fit in and just trying to be who I thought I should be instead of being who I really was. Mm -hmm. So a large part of my childhood was that, you know, just status quo, Sam being Sam. And then it wasn't until I would say I was in my late 20s when I was getting my master's at Rutgers that I just I don't I I'm trying to think of what the catalyst was but it was probably just a series of experiences and conversations with my friends in grad school and then just coming into you know being my own woman in my 20s like finally living on my own like I wasn't living with my parents I had a roommate I had to like pay my rent like mm-hmm. finally being an adult that probably the culmination of all of those things. And I just started being like, wait, this is what I like. This is who I am. And I started being really dig. I started to really dig into who I was and really owning my identity um, as, you know, daughter of immigrants, proud Filipino American woman, um, and a feminist. I had, I have my yeah. master's in women's and gender studies. And that is like, so that is like, so the complete opposite of what <laughs> probably a lot of, uh, Filip- Filipino, uh, kids grow up to be. I mean, a, a lot of, a lot of my friends who are Filipino and certainly, um, a lot of my family and my cousins, they grew up to be doctors and nurses. And that's really what you do. Like when you're Filipino, like you go into nursing or you become a doctor. Um, and that wasn't me at all. Like I, I kind of was like, I am not good at science. Like I believe in science, but Mm -hmm. I'm really not good at it. Um, but I am pretty outspoken. I love reading. And I just kind of fell into feminism and women's studies and, and the liberal arts. And so at my time in grad school there at Rutgers um, was extremely eye-opening for me. And I came out of that experience so much stronger. And that's when I just really felt like I knew who I was. And then it from that time... Um, to now, which has been almost 10 years, nine years, um, I've just really dug deeper into my identity. And I've become quite comfortable speaking out and saying, 
this is what I believe in, or this is what I stand up for. Um, and it's, it's very different from who I was when I was a little girl. The trajectory is kind of all over the place for me. So I I wonder then, um, because I absolutely connect to everything you're saying with, from the very beginning with just wanting to assimilate and wanting to kind of find your place amongst everyone else with the status quo. But how did you recognize the way, how did you recognize your ability to manage your parental expectations and those pressures? Not even just parental, family, because I understand with you know, when you're a foreign um, child of immigrants living in the United States, you have a whole community to answer to. How do you manage that, knowing that pressure, knowing those expectations? I am still managing it. <laughs> I um, I probably, like a lot of children of immigrants, will probably continue doing that. And mm-hmm. we're all adults now, but in just conversations with other friends who are children of immigrants, they're still managing those expectations. Mm-hmm. But it really started um, by me just saying, like, I don't, I don't want to do that. And I think looking back, that was really difficult for my parents to hear because I was... I was always a good student. I was on honor roll. Like I got straight A's, you know, I, 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 and I loved being a student. I, I love learning, but it was probably very hard for them to hear their daughter be like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> and then the follow-up to that was, well, what do you want to do? I don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. And my parents are just, my, my, my father is a pediatrician and um, my mother managed his practice. So these are two incredibly smart, very brilliant, hardworking people. And to hear their daughter kind of take that, I, I would say maybe it's like an American mentality to just kind of be like, I don't know what I want to do and that's okay. Yep. Yep. Um, for, for them to experience that with, with me was probably very difficult. And I recognize that. Um, and while I was in college, I I studied history and, um, well, first I was political science and then I switched over to history. And I I told my parents, I think I want to be a lawyer. Um, and so for a few years while I was working on my undergrad, I was like, I, I I think I want to go to law school. This is what I want to do. And that was like an acceptable (laughs) occupation. That was an acceptable career for my parents. Okay. They're like nurse or doctor, no lawyer. All right. That's fine. Like that's, that's an honorable living. And then, you know, I think it was my senior year, I was studying abroad in London. I was like, telling my parents, yeah, I don't, I definitely don't want to go to law school. I don't want to do that at all. Maybe I want to teach, but uh, I don't know what I want to do. So I think I'm gonna, um, we didn't call it a gap year. I understand that's what you call it now. But I told them, I think I want to take a year off, and then I'll go to graduate school. And my parents were like, "Yeah, what is going on with this young yeah. woman? Who, who did we raise? Um, and so there was a lot of conversations with them. And I love my parents. Um, but they were diff- difficult conversations. And it, it was very much trying to explain to my parents, like, listen, like, I understand that you want the best for me, 
trust me, I want the best for myself. <laughs> but the path you think is right for me is not the path I think is right for myself. And ultimately, this is my life. And this is how I want to live it. And they've slowly, um, they've slowly come along, like, a- after I finished up my master's degree, and I started working, you know, I, I had a, a a, a job at a nonprofit, they're like, all right, she kind of seems to know what she's doing. Um, but in the early start of my career, after after I got my master's, there were definitely questions and conversations about, you know, is this really what you want to do? Like, do you mm-hmm. really want in the nonprofit sector, you could still go, you could still go to med school, you, know, you could still go to nursing school, you can make that switch if you want. Um, so I it was very much just having to have these honest and candid conversations with my parents and my family, my brother and my sister, my brother is a nurse and, um, my sister, um, uh, works in real estate. Um, so she didn't, she didn't take the, Mm -hmm. the kind of familiar path either. And she's older than I am. So I probably owe owe her credit for kind of forging that path too. But Mm -hmm. having these conversations with those close to me and around me and just being honest about what I wanted to do and who I was. Yeah, that is very interesting. So let's take it a little, I guess, deeper and think about or talk about identity, right? Mm -hmm. Because you identify as a Filipino American, Um, And you lead with that and the fact that you're a child of immigrants. So the term women of color Mm -hmm. or WOC that we see more so now, when did you come to identify with that term? And I ask because me going through similar struggles for a long time, I tried to figure out who am I? Am I Black? Am I Black American? Am I African? African American? Who am I? So how did you come to the point of saying, look, my identity is also a woman of color. That happened when I was in grad school, when I was studying women's and gender studies. I was reading a lot of formative feminist text um, by both white feminists and self-identified white feminists and also black feminists. And I found myself more and more drawn and um under under I felt like I read it the the texts and the books by black feminist authors resonated with me a lot more because they talked about um both race and ethnicity and Mm -hmm. identity that was outside of gender and I I can't remember what I read it was like I, it was probably just a series of readings I was doing one week in at, at, at school that I just was like, wait, I am, I, I am a woman of color. Like, yes, I am. Yes, I am Filipino American, but I am also a woman of color. And I lead with that because I feel like that signifies a lot more of my identity than just being a Filipino American. Mm-hmm. Cause I didn't have like a traditional, I don't even know what a traditional Filipino American upbringing and bringing is, but um, a lot of my friends growing up were 
um, they were Latinx, they were black and they, they were children of color. And so I, I was welcomed into their family homes. I ate their foods. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I can't speak another language to save my life, but you know, I was in home. I was in homes where, you know, a language other than English was spoken. And then of course I also had my white friends. And so all of the different, all of the people I was around had different race, ethnicities and identities. And that really shaped who I was, if that makes sense. I am I'm very proud to be a Filipino American, but I always lead with women of color because um, number one, I think women have um, a lot of experiences that are different from men. And I'm not trying to be um, like binary, um, but people who identify as women have experiences different than people who identify as men. And also as a person of color, I have a set of experiences that are very different from mm-hmm. uh, uh, people who are white. So that's what I lead with. Yeah. So so that's an interesting bridge for me because you are in, you work in philanthropy. I want to talk more about what you do professionally. But before we do, how did you end up in that space? Like, I know we talked earlier about this nonlinear path. How did you end up there? I... <laughs> I fell into it. Honestly, I, my first job out of grad school was at a nonprofit. When I, when I finished my master's, I'm like, I know I want to work in the nonprofit sector. I want to work on social issues. Like from the time I was a very little girl, I felt very passionate and very strongly about social issues. And that a lot of that is influenced from my parents. Like my parents are very civic minded. They pay attention to what's going on, not just in the world, but like in the, in the community. So that's kind of why I wanted to work in the nonprofit sector, but I was hired as an administrative assistant for the CEO uh, of a nonprofit. And I honestly, when I say I fell into it, I fell into it because what happened is the grant writer for that organization was out on leave for some reason. And the CEO at the time um, liked the way I wrote I because I managed her correspondence. Like I would write letters, I would draft emails for her. And she said, I like the way you write. That's my liberal arts upbringing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> She's like, why don't you write this grant? Uh, so I did. We ended up getting funded. And she's like, well, why don't you apply for this one? Okay, did, got funded. Well, why don't you? So I, it was just kind of this cycle wow. of writing, researching foundations, establishing some of those relationships, getting to know the program officers, the, the trustees of the foundation board, and going from there. But I it was not the path that I <laughs> set out on. I mean, nowadays... Um, if you're studying nonprofit, there's like a philanthropy track, like you, and you can study to become uh, like a certified fundraising executive. Like there's a series of courses you need to take. You need to have experience. Like you can, you can very much take an academic track for the path that I'm on, but I didn't do that. I took the back door away. I probably opened a few windows along the way and made it work, but um, (laughs) it was work that I never set out to do, but I absolutely love my job so much. It's really, really incredible. And I mean, talk about getting, working on social issues. um, That's, that's really what I'm doing. Um, 
working in philanthropy, I am working with people who want to see change and have the financial ability to do that. And I help by directing their investments into into programs or services towards the greater good. So I love I love what I do, but never in a million years would I think that I would be doing it. Wow. And so let's talk about then, okay, let's go back to, to the identity piece as a woman of color. And now you're working in this space. You brought up a very interesting point about navigating this nexus when you as in, in um, the nexus of power and privilege and wealth mm-hmm. as a woman of color. What is that like for you in that experience? It's, I will be honest and candid. Sometimes it's really difficult. And sometimes it makes me think, is this work for me? Because it's in, it's incredible to see with my own eyes how much money can change things, mm-hmm. really. And um, I, I had a, um, a develop in nonprofit sector we call fundraising development. Um, so I head up a development department right now, and we raise a lot of money. And it's incredible to see how some issues can be solved by money. And at, mm-hmm. at times it can be, it can be like, wow, like that's incredible. Like with, with this amount of money where we are, exp- um, I work for a sexual and reproductive healthcare provider. So I'm like, we can actually make these services possible for patients. And that's incredible. But also I'm like, if we don't make this happen, like if we can't, if I can't find the revenue to support something, then what does that mean? Does that mean someone's not getting healthcare? And so yeah. it's really interesting. And I, I, I manage a portfolio of um, very wealthy individuals. And sometimes it's hard, you know, I'm not going to lie. Um, and it's hard to navigate those conversations. Um and sometimes a lot of that has to do with my identity because I don't have shared experiences yeah. uh, with my donors. Sometimes I do, but a lot of times I really don't. I mean, I, I'll never forget at, at another job, um, I it was maybe my first month on the job and I was meeting with one of the organization's um, biggest donors and they asked me, you know, um, well, what street did you live on? They thought I grew, they thought I was born in the, in the town that I was working. And I, and I said, mm. no, I wasn't, <laughs> I didn't grow up here. And like, they, I wish I could describe the phase, but it was like a phase mm-hmm. of shock. Like they mm-hmm. could not believe that someone like me who wasn't born in that town was like sitting in front of them. <laughs> like about to have a conversation about money. Like it was such a surreal experience, but I'm very aware of that sometimes just because of the job that I do. I mean, I'm dealing with individuals who are incredibly powerful, who have wealth and who, you know, can, can direct their philanthropy in a way that impacts the lives of other people. And it's really interesting work. I find it very personally fulfilling, but sometimes it can be um, 
I'm, you know, I have my good and bad days, just like, just like anybody else, but it's, it's, I don't know how quite to describe it. (laughs) Yeah. So in the actual process, how does it work? Like, are you connecting with these individuals who have um, capacity and then sitting and saying, look, here are our programs. Why don't you donate? I mean, donate. How does it actually work? Well, I always individual, I don't want to say individual. I always tailor um, any time I spend with my donors to how they want to spend it. So a lot of times it's, well, in a pandemic world, everything's happening virtually. And so a lot of the time it's virtual meetings so they can see my face, but some have opted to um, just you know, they, I just want to talk on the phone or, Hey, can you just text me something? Hey, can you just email me something? So I always try to, um, set up the way that I, it's an experience really, um, in a way that the, the donor wants it to happen or meeting time or whatever. And instead of approaching it as like, I'm asking you for money, that's very transactional. And I, um, I don't like that. It feels kind of icky. It feels probably icky for both parties, for both the donor and for me to just approach it from that standpoint. I approach it very much from um, the view of like, you know, what's, what are, what do you care most about? Um, And working for a sexual and reproductive healthcare provider, you know, um, access to reproductive care is very big. And so a lot of people will say, well, this issue is very, very important to me. And I say, you know, with a gift of this amount, you can make it happen for, I don't know, um, a dozen or a hundred patients, or you can sustain this program that is providing the service that you care about. So that's how I approach it. Just, you know, illustrating how their investments can make an actual difference because it's true. It's, it's, it is making a difference. And especially now with, with the world being what it is and people are so attuned to um, human and social service issues, people want to do something because they feel like everything's kind of been crumbling apart for so long that they want to take the matters into their own hands and they want to be philanthropic. And I'm just like, I can help you do that. I just guide them along the way. Yeah, that's good. It's, it's just, it's so interesting because it sounds like, or would seem like there's a lot of nurturing and kind of appealing to people's you know, personalities and, you know, making sure they're feeling good about what they're going to do or have to do. I mean, is some of that involved? Like, do you also have to kind of be a a personality manager? Absolutely. So I always say that a good fundraiser is managing relationships. We're not raising money. I mean, raising money should be like third on the list of what we do. The top thing I believe should be having meaningful relationships with our donors. And I say that because it's like it's very icky just to ask somebody for money. And I do it for a living. Like I literally do this Monday through Friday, sometimes on the weekends. But it's it feels something feels off about having it be so transactional. And so 
leading with you want to make good you want to make something good out of this world and i can help you direct it into the way you want to see this world be better mm-hmm. it's it it's it's easier that way and it's more genuine that way because you feel like it's making a difference because it is it's not the the focus is less on the exchange of money the focus is less on closing the gift and more on understanding what your donors interests are understanding mm-hmm. what passions what they feel passionate about um getting to know who they are like a lot of times my conversations have nothing to do um with with uh their their philanthropy it's mm-hmm. you know how how are how are you doing um you know h- how were your holidays When's the next time, you know, um, you think you're going to see your family? A lot of, a lot of my donors haven't seen their, like me, haven't seen their family in so long. And so it's just having those conversations that maybe you or I would have, or I would have with my friends and my family members Mm -hmm. and managing those relationships. Mm. And then what do the people that are at your level in this field, what, what do they look like? Are there women of color or are you more unique to this field or this level in this field? So I would say there's a growing number of women of color fundraisers. And I actually just joined um, an affinity, an affinity group called um, Woke and it's uh, Women of Color Fundraising Network. Um, They're based out of New York. Um, It's incredible, but I would, I would say a lot of the people in my position don't look like me. Mm -hmm. Um, when I go to conferences, I'm usually one of like maybe two, three, I'm lucky if there's like five people of color (laughs) at, at my level. Um, but like I said, that's changing. Um, you know, certainly the higher up, uh, you go there, there's less people of color in leadership positions. Um, certainly there are a lot of people of color in the frontline fundraising positions, but, um, yeah, a lot of people don't look like me. And, um, when I talk about the nexus of power and privilege and money, I'm also talking about like that, the other side of it, not just the donors, but also the people in my position, Mm -hmm. because sometimes I will have an experience uh, or several experiences. And I'll think to myself, would that have happened if I was, would that have happened if I was white or I was not a person Mm -hmm. of color? Mm -hmm. You know, would, would they feel comfortable saying that around somebody else? Um, and sometimes I want to have, and I'm growing, I'm, I'm growing my peer network, but sometimes I would like to have someone that I could just be like, Oh my God, this just happened. Am I losing it? Or like, or do you, do you understand where I'm coming from? Has this happened to you before? Like, that would be really nice. And I, and I found that while there are a growing number of us in leadership positions in in the nonprofit and in philanthropy, still I feel a little bit isolated. And when I do, uh, 
I just, you know, I'll, I'll kind of compartmentalize it and go on about my day or let it dwell too long and then get over it. <laughs> but yeah. 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 That's, I mean, that's, I mean, unfortunately that is not a unique space for women at certain levels in any field that are women yeah. of color. Um, and that whole idea of having that person that in that space that you can say, what, did you see that? Did you notice that? Yeah. <laughs> that is one thing I wish that I could have, you know, in the space. And the assumption is that the other women in the space that look like you are those women. And that's not always the case either. You know, you right. just have to find that, figure out who that person is. And that's a very difficult place to be. So tell me, you mentioned the importance of lifting others up for, for this new year. Is this part of kind of your intention process in your space and in your field to lift up other young women of color? Absolutely. Absolutely. If I have one resolution, it is, it is just that it's what you said. It's to lift up other women, women of color in general, but more specifically in my field, because I, the, the, the path here was not easy. I have experienced a lot of heartache and a lot of pain, mm -hmm. um, to get to where I am today. If I can spare another person of color from experiencing that, I will have lived my purpose in life. Um, mm -hmm. and I want to create the space where there are more women like me. I want to see more of me and I want to celebrate them because we don't celebrate ourselves enough. Oh, yeah. Um, and so that is what I am setting out to do. Like I have my, I have my career go goals just like anybody else. And then I have my personal goals. And that is seriously a personal goal of mine is just to see women of color win all the time, 24 seven. I'm rooting for us all the time. <laughs> that's great that is so awesome and very very inspiring so where can people find you or connect with you or learn more about you samantha sure so i think my my most prominent and the best way to get in touch with me is through my linkedin um and so people can just search linkedin for me, um, linkedin.com, Samantha Bobola. I have a pretty unique last name, so it's pretty easy to find me on LinkedIn, but that is the best way for people to get directly in touch with me. And I, you know, I, I, I'm happy to help anybody. Like I am always willing to give a hand out and a hand up because frankly, I didn't get enough of those growing up. So yeah. I'm like willing to throw them out as much as I can. Yeah. And you're, you're absolutely true when you say that, because I remember when we first met, you were really open and receptive to connecting and figuring out how you could help me when I was in my role mm -hmm. um, in higher ed. And so for those of you who are listening, she is telling the absolute truth. This is <laughs> for real. So thank you for that. And um, it has been quite um, the experience and hopefully after COVID we can reconnect. I am Samantha Bobla, and I am disrupting balance by taking up space.
Thank you for listening to the Disrupting Balance podcast with Hanifa Barnes. Hey, make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. And if you're not following me yet, find me at Disrupting Balance on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and LinkedIn. And guess what? I'm on Clubhouse at Hanifa Barnes ESQ. And if you want free tools or any and all things Disrupting Balance, check out the website, www.disruptingbalance.com. Talk soon.